are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trap podcast. On today's episode, I talk to empirical economist Nathan Lane, who is an associate professor of economics at the University of Oxford and co-founder of data-oriented research group Soda Laboratories in Melbourne, Australia. We talk about his work on industrial policy and what we can learn from the state of the evidence so far. Industrial policy refers to a set of interventions like subsidies, waivers, and other incentives that governments usually use in trying to create new local industries. These policies have regained prominence in economic development policy discourse recently, after a period of being relegated in favor of more open market and economic liberalization policies. This makes it important, in my view, to interrogate the effectiveness of industrial policy and some of the nuance that the current revival is missing. No one is more qualified than Nathan Lane to do this, as he has been an advocate for carefulness, humility, and precision about industrial policy for years. I hope you enjoyed the discussion, and I want to thank Nathan for talking to me. Ideas on Trap is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace that gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. Yeah, industrial policy is back in fashion, I should say, right now. It's certainly on the agenda of so many public policy scholars, experts, and policymakers all around the world. Even places like the IMF are talking about industrial policy. Mm. But first, why do you think that is happening at the current moment? Is it because of the supposed failed promise of neoliberal development that culminated in the financial crisis? Yeah, I think for sure, I think that plays a certain role in it. And that there are some contradictions to the neoliberal package or the Washington consensus package essentially told us industrial policy doesn't work. This, this, this writ large, this policy package, this thing we call, think of as industrial policy didn't work. And so it was kind of rejected, but countries still kept doing it and they kept doing it under different names or kind of rebranding it, but everyone kept doing it. And so I think with the contradictions that emerged post-2008 and the rise of kind of questioning of what we think of as globalization in general, for better or worse, I think created a kind of renewed conversation about industrial policy. I think that was also spurred by a couple prominent people pushing the discussion further, people like Joseph Stiglitz and very prominent people saying, well, we, we do industrial policy and there are means by which perhaps industrial policy can be coherently done. And so these people who had very public audience and a wide ranging audience, people like Danny Roderick, of course, too, who were thinking deeply about what industrial policy is. They came to a head at a really important time where there was this kind of questioning of, again, for better or worse, the kind of neoliberal package that had consensus that had emerged a decade prior. And I think also the empirical revolution in economics, this idea that like we care about data, we care about measuring stuff, inevitably caught up to this idea that industrial policy, one, doesn't occur and two, doesn't work. And so once you start opening that box, once you start studying industrial policy through data and kind of thinking about, well, where, where does it occur? Where might it occur? There's, again, some glaring contradictions with the narrative that no one does industrial policy or industrial policy doesn't work. So I think that also kind of played a role intellectually in renewed interest in industrial policy as well. And then COVID, you know, COVID has only amplified things a bit too. Mm. Um, then you have other things like some of the trade wars that happened, some of the um, kind of strategic trade policies that have occurred, especially around China, because China surely was always using industrial policy heavily. And so how do you strategically respond to that? How do you respond to that if your country losing pace to China? 
well, do we do nothing? How do we address this? And of course, Trump did something rather incoherent, but what happened around Trumpism in the U.S. also kind of spurred a renewed conversation about industrial policy. Sometimes pretty incoherent, but yeah, I went a bunch of places there. But I think what you said is broadly right. It just happened to be a culmination of stuff that happened post-2008 that I think brought the conversation to a head. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, when we say industrial policy, we're talking about a deliberate set of interventions by the government to change the structure of an economy, say from one dominated by agriculture to manufacturing, for example. Yes. And one confusion that I've struggled to communicate in my own private discussions with so many people is industrial policy comes in many flavors. So kindly distinguish what kind of flavors that are there between different kinds of industrial, particularly what is usually called export manufacturing or export orientation that is often credited for the success of East Asia growth miracle and import substitution industrialization that was quite popular in Latin America and Africa? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question because a lot of the levers of industrial policy, the strategies of industrial policy people pursue, like export driven versus import substitution type policies, the conversation is super muddled. And often people use ISI, import substitution industrialization strategy, as sometimes synonymous with industrial policy in general, which is super confusing. This is just to say, like, I think that all these terms around industrial policy often confuse the conversation. So you nailed the definition. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, it's intentional state interventions that are kind of meant to shape the composition of an economy. And so the ways by which a government can do that or a state can do that are are very wide. There's a lot of policy levers at a state's disposal in order to do that, in order to do such a thing. And we think of policy levers such as trade policy stuff which would be tariffs, quantitative restrictions, all sorts of trade restrictions, as usually being part of what we think of as import substitution type strategies, where you're trying to really create barriers to foreign imports into a country in order to create domestic industry or foster domestic industry. It's usually the types of policies that are associated with protectionism. Backing up a bit, ISI we think of as like a strategy, as a way that people try to implement industrial policy. And it's usually a couple types of policies like that that are meant to kind of increase the price of imports relative to domestic goods. But of course, like you said, industrial policy can be so many things. And of course, like an alternative kind of chunk of policies or an alternative strategy, an alternative way that people practice industrial policy, largely characterized by East Asia's export promotion type policies, which can too also consist of trade policies of some sort, but are usually meant to foster exports rather than the explicit goal of directly substituting for imports or creating barriers to imports. And this is where the confusion comes in the discussions around ISI versus export policies is that the two can kind of overlap in wonky ways. Like if you're exporting a lot of stuff, for instance, let's say you implement policy levers, subsidies, specifically export subsidies, and you grow an export sector in a country, well, you are de facto protecting those industries. You're changing their prices relative to their imported competition. But you're also probably creating substitution for the import competing products that you are now exporting. And so there's like the Venn diagram is a lot of over. There can be some overlap between what people call ISI and export promotion policies. And then also a lot of the kind of policy levers that we associate with export promotion type stuff can also be seen by many people as protectionist. Even though you're promoting exports, well, you know, you're essentially, if you're promoting the exports of your domestic steel industry, well, you're probably um, substituting for and and kind of penalizing, acting against those imports that are coming in for steel from abroad. So I think it's like usually a lot of conversation around ISI import substitution policies can get really tricky. And if you look at East Asia, for example, even at the time, or shortly after, people refer to a lot of these policies that are very export-oriented sometimes. Even the governments themselves might refer to them as import substitution policies. But 
as you kind of mentioned, in the policies we saw in Latin America in the post-war, these aren't like really over protection like we saw there. It's like the objectives, going back to something you mentioned earlier, like the objectives were super different and their objectives were very much tied to promulgating and sustaining an export industry, which is essentially saying that you have to be internationally competitive. Let's delve into the weeds a bit, you know. So if you take people like, uh, I'm sure you are aware of Hajun Chan and so yeah. many other industrial policy advocates who are really, really big on this, Robert Wade, I mean, the rest. Yeah. The big yeah. claim is that industrial policy works and that developing countries cannot develop without doing these types of policies. And you always go back into history, though I find the trendy discussions, I mean, it's crept all over to Silicon Valley now. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the obsession with uh, Frederick List, the German economist and yes, I mean, yes. all the rest. So the big claim is that industrial policy is how the West got rich. And literally from Ajuchan's book, it's the mm. West kicking away the ladder by saying, don't do industrial policy. But what I've learned, particularly from your work, I think it was your 2017 paper, is that the landscape of evidence is not so simple and not so yeah. clear. So can you just, I mean, run me through a bit of the evidence landscape? What have we been missing? Yeah, yeah. So I think people like Robert Wade, I think he's much more thoughtful than a lot of people. And he's thinking about the anecdotes, often qualitatively, as to what are these cases that we know where industrial policy worked and was successful. And I think that's important because people can kind of gloss over that sometimes. Some of the historical work he's done has been important in kind of illuminating and empirically, though through narratives and prose, empirically saying, okay, here are some cases with industrial policy that we think of as integral to, let's say, Taiwan's experience and probably played a key role. But I think there's a lot of people who overgeneralize historical anecdotes and they themselves don't carry on a lot of like deep empirical research into what worked and what didn't and kind of make very sweeping claims about the role industrial policy played either to the negative or to the affirmative in the industrialization of, let's say, OECD countries. And going to your point about what is the empirical landscape like, it's really muddled in that we don't have, there's a lot of good historical work that sometimes gets underappreciated. But in general, there's not good, in my opinion, and people will profoundly disagree with me. Yu Chang will probably disagree with me. I think there's not a lot of coherent synthesis, especially using kind of modern empirical tools as to what worked and what didn't, and the extent to which industrial policy played in the ascent of certain countries. And if so, what aspects of industrial policy worked and what didn't. Um, I'm highly sympathetic to industrial policy, but I'm also very sympathetic to the point that across Africa, there are cases where industrial policy surely didn't work. And studying those cases are, I feel, just as important. And so this is to say, I think the empirical landscape is really, really thin. Going back to the kind of Washington consensus, people just kind of ignored industrial policy. Ah, oh, this, this stuff doesn't work. There is a caricature of industrial policy as like this stuff at writ large is a failure. Of course, the conversation was more nuanced than that. But in general, most economists are like, this stuff doesn't work. And so let's not aim our gaze there. Uh, let's move on to other stuff. So people just stopped taking empirical notice of this policy. And so what we're left with as this conversation of industrial policy returned, like you said, last 10 years, last 15 years, the policy discussion has returned. We're kind of left very empty handed about our systematic understanding of what works, what doesn't, the scope to which industrial policy played a role in the past, especially in the OECD countries. These are things that I feel are very, and I'm an empirical economist, I'm data-driven. These are things I feel are holes in our knowledge that we haven't quite synthesized. Um, and so I'm of the mind that it's really hard to say what role industrial policy played, how specific we can get as to claiming that industrial policy played certain roles in certain places, like OECD countries. I think it's very heterogeneous. I think in East Asia, our track record and our body of knowledge is a bit more 
robust and growing and we can say things more definitively. But even there, it's like the conversation around industrial policy, when it's not grounded on empirics, can get really confusing and muddled, both from people who are against industrial policy and those who are pro, like some of the people you mentioned. So that's just all to say that I think our knowledge of industrial policy empirically is absolutely inadequate. And people make very strong claims on either side as to its effects. And it's a very frustrating place to be right now, especially when the demand for answers is so high. And you probably get a sense of that. I'm, I'm sure that like the policy conversation in Nigeria is probably like uh, reflects that a bit. I would be surprised if it didn't. Yeah, it does. It does, actually. Uh, so one case which you have studied, which I want us to also go into a bit, I mean, talking about advocates of industrial policy, people of Korea a lot. And this is actually a situation you have actually looked at empirically quite yeah. in depth. One of the things I learned from that paper on uh, manufacturing revolutions, which was about Korea, was that what we can call or sometimes what gets called industrial policy for South Korea at different phases meant different things. You know, mm -hmm. there was the strategic trade, there was the heavy and chemical industry drive, there was the uh, currency control subsidies for importing inputs, you know, and so many things. Mm -hmm. But the general idea you get is that, oh, industrial policy was what helped South Korea converge with the developed world. So walk me through the Korea example and what we can learn from the evidence. Yeah, so it's true. I think it's hard to look at South Korea and say industrial policy didn't play a role. Or as some people even argue that they, they developed in spite of industrial policy, because all throughout up until now, even through periods that people call very liberal in South Korea, they were always kind of doing industrial policy. They are kind of like this canonical example of industrial policy and you can periodize what they were doing into, like you alluded to, like different chunks. They, they kind of emerged in the early 60s, having done, indeed, import substitution style policies, very strict import substitution style policies, and really switched to modern, what we think of as like the East Asian kind of export promotion stuff under President Park Chung-hee, then General Park Chung-hee, their president. And so they started kind of pursuing through, through the 1960s what was then kind of a very exotic policy of export promotion, industrial policy, where they essentially in the 1960s uh, gave broad export support to essentially any industry that could export. You got a lot of goodies, you got a lot of subsidies, um, and they were managed effectively very well. And we still don't know a lot about that period, too. I, I'm still trying to have, do some more work on that. And then there's another chunk of policies that you also nailed it. There's the heavy chemical and industry kind of drive. It was super controversial that he pursued in the early 70s until his death in 1979. That's you know what I study in the Manufacturing Revolutions paper. And there, that was kind of a continuation. There's a very specific articulation of the policies South Korea pursued in the 1960s, where they were really trying to go for a specific set of sectors Let's allocate industrial policy to a very specific set of sectors because these sectors are kind of our chance to become a, a heavy industrial economy, a modern economy, not just the exporter of plywood and, and wigs, but an economy that can export like what we think of as like modern, technologically intensive products. And so after his death in 1979, his policy was essentially retrenched and kind of pulled out. And they, again, kind of pursued much different policies. They kind of liberalized the economy in the 1980s. And in projects I'm doing now with my colleagues at the Korean Development Institute, we're kind of exploring what they did in the 1980s, which is largely thought to be a super liberal period. But as we see, like they're still doing, I mean, not as heavily as they were in the 60s and 70s, but they're still doing industrial targeting. They're still doing very, very coordinated industrial policy-like policies. If you took them out of the 1980s South Korean context and did them today, they would look to many people like very interventionist, very kind of strong, direct, what we think of sometimes people call hard industrial policy. So that's my long-winded way of saying they were always doing industrial policy, but pursuing it in very different ways 
in these different periods, sometimes with more success or less, but it's hard to walk away from South Korea and to think like industrial policy either damaged their transition into kind of a modern manufacturing economy or that it didn't play a role in that. It's hard to look at an economy like South Korea and say like, this didn't work. I think the policy lessons we have to draw from South Korea are actually still to be seen. I think what didn't work clearly and what did work appropriately were some of the things you, you mentioned that were always kind of used throughout you know, all these different periods of South Korean industrial policy. They were really mindful of incentivizing things. They were really mindful of what we might call incentive compatibility. If you were an exporter, for instance, you weren't going to get access to the goods you needed or the, the money you needed, the subsidies you needed. Like these things were very much binding. You had to perform. I think that overall is like an important message of the South Korean episode, which is that they were extremely granular, extremely thoughtful about the implementation of these policies and the extent to which they were binding for firms. And relatedly is something you also mentioned, which is like the emphasis on imports. To be a manufacturing powerhouse, you have to have access to usually very, very um, advanced or high quality intermediate imports from abroad. Because an economy like South Korea, a small open economy, can't produce all the inputs alone on their own. They rely on imports. And one thing we see from trade liberalization studies, a kind of parallel with industrial policy, is that when you liberalize and allow countries like India, for example, is a good example, when you allow import liberalization, that is liberalization and the ability of firms to import key intermediate products, that go into the production process that can really have pretty profound effects on productivity and your ability to export, your ability to produce high quality goods even without exporting. And so what's the analogy there with South Korea and industrial policy is that South Korea was very mindful of this from the very start. You need to allow, let's say in the 60s or 70s, you need to allow importers access to important key inputs from abroad. And they always designed policy around that idea that you had to enable people to import things. Sometimes they would even subsidize the import of key products into the country in order to allow domestic industry to kind of thrive and be export champions. And that's something that's kind of missed. It's a nuance that's kind of missed in the conversation of industrial policy there because so often we're very ready to like, people are always wanting to choose a side. You're either protectionist or not. You're either ISI or export promoting. You're either these binaries. And when you drill down, you see that, well, it's kind of like you alluded to. It's the policies are using kind of belie categorization sometimes. There's sometimes very nuanced things that they're doing, such as this import. It essentially, for certain industries, de facto import liberalization in order to pursue policy that's very interventionist. And these are kind of mm -hmm. subtleties that I think are important. The incentives... And the import liberalization are kind of two things I think are like super important from the South Korea episode. Other things too are, are um, I could go on, but those are two things that are very front of mind for me coming out of these projects. That's super important right there, because if we take the Nigeria example and what we've been trying to do for six years as some kind of industrial policy. It's often characterized by import restrictions, yeah. which goes back to, I mean, what we talked about earlier about import substitution industrialization. So two related questions, and I'll start with this one. It's a bit of a simplistic question. I would like you to provide the necessary context. Are exports really the silver bullets? Because it seemed like the biggest thing you can take from the East Asian experience, and I mean, given your work also on mm -hmm. South Korea, it seemed like the biggest difference between that episode and other regions of the world that has tried to do uh, industrial policy, the sheer difference in the export share of uh, GDP mm -hmm. or economy. Yeah. It's a great question because it's one I struggle with. I guess I'll break it into two parts. You get a real bang for your buck insofar as promoting export activity because your engagement with the rest of the world. A lot of sources, different sources, in fact, of productivity gains that come with being an exporter. We know that there's a lot of um, potential spillovers that could accrue to an economy by being an exporter, et cetera, et cetera. 
a lot of these things we do know and are very well recorded and an area of research where we do have outside of industrial policy, just broadly in the field of industrial development and developing economies, work by people like Eric Verhoeven over at Columbia University comes to mind. We do know exporting does important stuff. It does important stuff. Is it the only route to industrialization? Is it the only dimension by which we should kind of concentrate our industrial policy lens? There I'm like less certain. I mean, as a trade economist, I do believe exports are hugely important. But are they everything? Because very few firms in an economy and very, very few sectors in an economy might be responsible for a great deal of the overall export activity in the economy. So is it everything? I'm not sure, especially when we think of the importance of non-tradable sectors like services, which is kind of a target of industrial policy thinking right now. Of course, some services are tradable, but some service industries aren't. And should exports be our only focus? I don't think so. And I think there is where we know a lot less empirically. And I think our overemphasis on exports, if it's an overemphasis, is more so the product of what we know empirically and a product of what worked in South Korea versus what should probably be our goal. Those are two distinct things. And I think to kind of put the bow on that and answer the question is, are exports the silver bullet? I think they're important, but I don't think they're the silver bullet that we think they might be. And I think that's because in African economies and in many countries in general, the service industry is huge and it's an important part of the economy and how to promote services, especially that aren't traded, how to promote high tech services, how to promote sectoral specific infrastructure. These are all things that aren't exported. I think it's massively important and it's where we know a lot less. And I think that's probably where industrial policy ought to fixate and kind of think through clearly. So just to repeat myself, I think there is a bit of an overemphasis on exports, which is by no means to say exports aren't important. I think they really are, but they're not the silver bullet we think they are. And if I could mm -hmm. add to that too, exporting is really hard. The world is super competitive when it comes to manufacturing exports and moving into hyper-competitive export activity. You know, to kind of constrain countries only to that seems very difficult. Although it's not, you know, not to say countries shouldn't do it, but I think it's, it's probably more difficult now more than ever. That's a very strong statement, but just thinking mm -hmm. about how competitive international markets are and the people, mm -hmm. the kind of countries and economies you would have to compete against to become, to kind of reach the international frontier. And this is, this is also kind of some people like Danny Roderick make similar arguments that the manufacturing landscape in so far as exports and the international market is a highly competitive one. And so to think of firms and developing countries breaking into that now, it's a pretty tall order. Speaking of Roderick, it brings me to my second related question on that point. He had this paper with Ricardo Hausmann a couple of years ago, also drilling down the point of exports to sectors, you know, saying that what you export also matters and using yes. South Korea with the HCI drive. And particularly, he had another paper on China where yes. he made the point that China's focus on electronics, the electronics industry, which was highly unusual for its level of income at the time, also helps yeah. The, yeah. the Chinese growth uh, experience. So my point is, in terms of exports and what you choose to focus on, because you are an advocate of precision when it comes to in industrial policy. Do you still think that the focus on manufacturing is a worthy endeavor for countries that are poor, or maybe relatively poor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do, I do think so, precisely because of some of these these arguments. And I think there's sometimes a downplaying of the importance of manufacturing. Again, especially as some people look at economies across Africa by saying, "Oh, well, look, you know, there's there's they're mainly service heavy." their share of value added or share of GDP in manufacturing in general is very low. Um, manufacturing is something we shouldn't focus on, but it's still, I think, a super important part of the economy. The emphasis on like some of the work they did on what you export mattering is important and is useful to thinking about how to perhaps guide industrial policy, especially some of their ideas around measures of complexity, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, I think what it could inform us as to, and here's where it might be important for, and is probably important for low-income countries or developing economies, is that I think it narrows the scope of industries that one should potentially focus on and one could potentially be viable on in the international market. And it can perhaps discipline that. To answer the question, I think manufacturing is still important in developing economies, especially in African economies. And I think that type of work does give us some tools of sorts. I think it needs to be developed, but it does hint at perhaps where one should focus their lens, where one should focus their gaze if they were to pursue export-led development of some sort. But I think you make an important point in that someone like myself and, and others do think manufacturing is important. I think there's a lot to be said about tapping into tradable sector, like our, I should say service sectors that are tradable, service sectors that are, mm. are exportable, human capital intensive sectors and uh, human capital service products and service industries. I think those are extremely important and sometimes overlooked in the conversation of export promotion. I think it's probably where there is, as some people say, latent comparative advantage for some African economies. And as I say that too, I think like some of the what you export matters discussion, I think it's sometimes a bit limited to, because they're, they're measuring all this stuff from trade data. So mm. they're saying very important things using you know, very, very rich trade data that we as economists have access to, uh, the UN trade data, et cetera. And I think it sometimes blinds us to the extent to which economic activity exists outside of what's recorded in that data. So that, you know, like services, mm. there's huge parts of the economy that aren't exported. So I sometimes think it can distort our emphasis a bit too much. Again, even as someone who thinks that manufacturing is important, some of those tools and some of that discussion is itself, I think, limited by data that only looks at what we export and only looks at what economies export. Underneath, there's a very large iceberg of economic activity that's probably very important, of which a lot might be services that we don't emphasize enough and that we don't understand enough either. So it's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, I think you're hinting at something important there. One other thing that caught my eye recently is another uh, paper by Isabella Weber, Tom Westland, and co. Taking the idea of what you export even further back into history, saying what you exported in the past also matter. I don't want to go into the empirics of, of that. I know the persistence literature has had its own problems. So, but yeah. <laughs> so I just want to talk about this idea of exporting high value products, particularly using industrial policy to develop local technological capability. Would you say that is a viable use of industrial policy? What does the evidence say regarding that? So I guess a couple things is that I think there's different tools, and these might be tools that people usually associate not with industrial policy. I think developing indigenous technological kind of uh, prowess, and capabilities is important and is probably pretty crucial. But I think it's how we do that and whether it's effective that's like the key. And what I'm hinting at is that there's some great research by colleagues here on basically FDI liberalization, or rather I shouldn't say FDI liberalization, but using foreign direct investment as a tool of industrial policy. Usually those things can sometimes people talk as two separate things, but if we look at the FDI literature, literature on foreign direct investment, which is very much centered around, in my opinion, it's very much centered around the externalities, especially the technological externalities that come from foreign partnerships and especially foreign direct investment. You know, your foreign firms come in, they produce technological spillovers that kind of ripple through the uh, developing economy some of which can be very important for exporters and other manufacturing activity, even service industries, because you have a large foreign firm that partners with a domestic firm or moves into an economy, they themselves demand high quality products as inputs, or they might pass on technology to those in their supply chain in order to be up to their standards. We do see that there's pretty strong technological upgrading that might occur through FDI channels. 
And that's one thing that I think the empirical literature is pretty clear on, is that these spillovers exist. And so if we think, how might that apply to your question? I think what people have shown is that industrial policy that is kind of compatible with foreign direct investment can often produce technological upgrading that is socially valuable for an economy and isn't just limited to targeted sectors. So there's a real bang for your buck in what we think of and what we observe as a pretty substantial, or rather I should say significant, technological upgrading that occurs through FDI, especially through FDI that's used that can be sector-specific, even perhaps subsidized in certain sectors. Some people might bite back rightly about subsidizing FDI, but that, that's another conversation. But that's to say sector-specific foreign direct investment promotion policies are, one, I think, industrial policy, and two, our evidence points towards pretty significant technological upgrading in targeted sectors and connected sectors that can be very valuable to an economy. So I think, in general, the idea of promoting technological upgrading is hard, and technological upgrading itself can be connected to our exporting activity. That is, as exporters, we kind of enter the world market, we might get spillovers from our trade partners. I should say this is like, Technological upgrading is possible. It's difficult. It itself is connected to exporting. But I think separately, if we want to think about industrial policy that might be compatible with technological upgrading, I think really the best evidence, perhaps might not be the most impactful, but the best evidence we have is the evidence that's centered around the importance of foreign direct investment and what it can do to promote technological upgrading that's actually feasible and actually probably has large social value for an economy pursuing industrial policy. So um, I think that's one place where if you think you can defy your technological endowment as an economy, that might be a coherent way there. And one that does seem to be borne out in the limited data we have from the FDI literature, which is very empirical. And applying some of our tools and some of our knowledge from the FDI literature into the realm of industrial policy, I think, is a, a particularly probably poignant or potent way of thinking about industrial policy that can be compatible with technological upgrading and breaking the kind of technological persistence that might be endemic to an economy. I should say the current head of the EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, has learned and kind of honed a lot of these lessons that occurred in the transition of post-Soviet economies. Of Soviet post-communist economies in this neck of the woods, and has learned a lot from those episodes and what can be done with technological upgrading through FDI and through FDI that's compatible with IPs. Yeah, yeah. So again, I'm going to ask you two related questions and you can choose to answer them separately. First of which is that the evidence landscape is what it is, but uh, industrial policy is gaining a lot of traction and it does not look like it's going to slow down. So as a policymaker who don't read academic papers, I can tell you, at least from my experience, how would a policymaker know what works and what doesn't, at yeah. least in, in order to not screw things up? Or should I say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to get things uh, minimally right if you're trying to do industrial policy? Yeah, it's not to sound glib. It's, I think, a great question. It's probably the question because our industrial policy literature is thin, but I think there's lessons that one can piece together from, I'd say, both qualitative and quantitative literatures. In economics, I think a lot of, for instance, the literatures I just shared about FDI or literatures around what we know about trade policy, which can sometimes be a lot different than industrial policy, I think can help us in understanding what's appropriate and what could potentially be disastrous when it comes to industrial policy. That's to say, I think from the economics and quantitative angle, there are literatures, while not explicitly industrial policy per se, can help us maybe avert some of the detrimental policies one might pursue. And that's to say the literature on trade liberalization, or more precisely put, um, the literature on trade policy and trade development can be highly useful, I think, for helping us avoid some of the failures of the past where they might exist, and maybe steering us toward export promotion policies or trade policies writ large that avoid some of the kind of productivity traps that occurred in the past. I think those would be some good 
kind of where I would train my gaze, even though that stuff might be associated with, you know, Washington consensus type arguments. Even there, I think there's hugely valuable kind of cautionary tales that are empirically grounded as to maybe what not to do. Insofar as what works quantitatively, I think the literature on, on, on technological upgrading that we talked about and FDI, I think is probably pretty useful and important in telling us what might be able to work. I think there might be kind of useful and kind of empirically grounded policies that we think of might have had very positive effects and promoted positive spillovers and are implementable. So I think those are mm-hmm. two, two realms. Um, I, I do think in the studies that are industrial policy, I think the work that is coming out, some of the quantitative work by people like Ernest Liu from Princeton, someone I think who thinks very deeply about what could quantitatively work with industrial policy. His work on industrial targeting in China, um, where one should probably aim for the highest returns for industrial policy, I think that would be invaluable and indispensable. I think similarly, work with Panlei Jia Barwick and, and co-authors on Chinese industrial policy. Uh, these are people who are looking at what worked and what didn't very carefully through the experience of Chinese shipbuilding. And very quantitatively, I think these are also some very good examples of where one might look for tools for thinking about what works and what doesn't. So I think there's probably some good cases from India as well, from um, people like Ann Harrison and team for India. What might be some of the policies aimed at small and medium enterprises that are usually industrial policies that might actually be pernicious, some might work. But I think that empirical literature on India from Ann Harrison companies, specifically around small and medium enterprise policies, are very useful, I think, for contemporary policymaking. Insofar as like non-quantitative evidence is just as valuable and a bit more plentiful, I think looking at the real technical kind of deep dives into how industrial policies worked in East Asia are valuable because they kind of pick apart the mechanisms of industrial policy and where and how they worked, even though it's qualitative, in cases where we know industrial policy might have been successful. Robert Wade's work is a great example. Alice Amson's work, I think, can be very high level and not granular enough, but is nevertheless, I think, really valuable insofar as how industrial policy was actually practiced. And I give these as examples because I think we need to look at qualitative work that really gets to the nitty gritty of the implementation and practice of industrial policy in the past. And I think a lot of current work on industrial policy that is qualitative doesn't do that. It's very, very high level. It's a lot of PowerPoint kind of MS Paint style charts of (laughs) You know, you know, like vague allusions to a very high level industrial policy problems that don't get into the detail enough and don't get empirical enough and are based on kind of copies of copies of copies of granular qualitative arguments. And I think that mm-hmm. stuff leads us very much astray and doesn't get us into the weeds enough. Um, mm-hmm. and if I were to be controversial, I'd say some of the work around moonshots right now by Mazzucato and others sadly falls into that trap. I think, of not being specific enough, not being precise enough, not being empirical enough about our experience in the past. And so mm-hmm. I think it's easier to kind of guide a policymaker on where the answers won't be. And I don't think the answers will be in very, very high level, very broad, vague discussions of industrial policy. I think we have so much of that. What's really missing is policymakers taking kind of very granular approaches, very detailed approaches to empirically again, empirically being qualitative and quantitative on what has happened in the past. I think there's some probably good examples from the historical side, but also the contemporary econometric side that can give us some good good hints there. Yeah, I hope that answered it. Sorry for the rambling. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. The second question on that point for me would be industrial policy is generally seen as producer-biased if I can say that. And for the population, for citizens and even other stakeholders in an economy, the measure with which we judge policy is their welfare effects. You know, yeah. For example, in Nigeria, our experiment with industrial policy in agriculture has led to inflation 
food inflation is currently at 25%, and it's really a serious poverty-inducing trend for a population that is already struggling under the auspices of so many things, and even in the light of COVID. But you see advocates who still say, oh, yeah, this has happened in the past. This is what happened in Korea. You have to persevere through it. Countries that develop, they don't consume so much. They always subsidize production until they are able to raise their income to a certain level. So the crucial question for me would be, as members of the public, members of the civil society, and other non-governmental stakeholders who also participate in the policy process, either through debates or other engagements. How do we know what is industrial policy from bullshit, basically? Yeah, yeah. I think the simple answer is like, there aren't good guides. There aren't good guides because the conversation has been so limited. But I think... You bring up the parts of industrial policy and the arguments around industrial policy that civil society and society at large should kind of be very wary of, which is industrial policy that is very damaging to consumer welfare, even in the short run, should give people pause. And I think you're right in that people are too sloppy in their rationale for industrial policy. I see it currently in current debates around industrial policy in OECD countries where people are like, oh, don't worry about the current costs. This what we call the short run costs or static costs of industrial policy that might be passed on to the society because there will be this nirvana that's achieved in the future. And while that is an argument for industrial policy in general, that yes, broadly, we think that industrial policy might be socially costly in the short run and might hopefully produce these gains in the long run. How how those costs of industrial policy are dispersed, who carries the burden of those costs, I think is extremely important. And people can deploy these types of dynamic arguments. By dynamic, I mean saying, you know, one day we'll achieve a competitive industry that'll bear fruit and be plentiful and be advantageous to everyone in the society. Don't worry about the short-run costs. It's like, well, we should be worried about short-run costs if they're being borne by everyone. And if the government isn't kind of attenuating those costs, I think People should be very skeptical of those types of arguments, especially when they're not concrete and imprecise and aren't predicated on a very clear time path for when we should realize these potential gains from industrial policy that should be born at some time in the future. When? I do see people making these arguments and I'm very skeptical of them. Even though I am pretty sympathetic to industrial policy, I think like I'm not sympathetic to very sloppy arguments for industrial policy that have ability to pass on very harmful effects to the everyday consumer or worker, I think you're absolutely right that we should be skeptical there. And I think the track record of industrial policies in promoting long-run development are probably a very good cautionary tale for why one shouldn't always buy the arguments that, oh, the pains of contemporary industrial policy, short-run effects of industrial policy are worthwhile because we'll eventually get, get all benefit. Well, it's like history is a bound of very disastrous examples of this. And how people can say the current setting, if we're talking about a current industrial policy, how it's different from the past, I think is important litmus test of like whether arguments for shouldering substantial costs, especially the everyday person shouldering substantial costs of industrial policy, whether it's worth it or not, I think it depends on whether people can tell us substantially, like whether these cases are different than the past, of which this Mm -hmm. has happened in the past greatly. And South Korea is like, People can be very imprecise about the types of costs that were borne by consumers or the types of inflationary stuff that happened in the past due to industrial policy. South Korea was by no means a paradise, but they broadly had wage growth, even in a very labor repressive environment. There was some sense that people were insulated from the heavy kind of distortionary effects of industrial policy and the effects of industrial policy, the positive upsides of industrial policy were with some important caveats, shared, and that there was the political economy of South Korea that, for whatever reason, allowed you know both some aspect of a welfare state that shielded consumers, albeit imperfectly, from some of the damaging consequences of industrial policy, which did exist. And there was some wage growth and kind of important benefits that accrued to workers, again, with important caveats, that made it such that industrial policy 
some of the benefits were shared broadly. So the downsides and upsides of industrial policy, there was the political economy that allowed them to kind of be born in some modicum of an equitable way. And I want to say with huge caveats, you know, hugely labor oppressive regime by no means probably was a social safety net that probably was substantial enough, but that was still there. And I think a lot of places don't have either of those things. And so mm-hmm. I think there's cautionary tales for, there's very important points for what was in place to smooth the political economy of industrial policy where successes did kind of have costs and benefits on society. And I think the, the elephant in the room for this type of argument is like, well, those industries eventually succeeded. You know, eventually these infants grew up and were internationally competitive. Some weren't, but in some important cases, they were. So, you know, they passed that kind of smell test if we were to hold them to a smell test. Whereas I think in a lot of cases, people can justify policies that probably won't succeed. And, you know, here we have cases where these policies indeed did succeed. But I think you make a really important point, I think, where we should be cautious with industrial policy and where I think proponents of industrial policy are not myself being one of them. But I think where we're not serious enough is in the political economy of industrial policy, the institutions in place being strong enough such that industrial policy works and such that the costs and benefits of industrial policy are shared amongst people, not just capital gaining the benefits and not just like the consumers and labor in society bearing the cost of industrial policy. I think that's to say the political economy of industrial policy is critically important. And that's also where we know so little. I wish you all the best and thank thank you you so much for doing this. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasontrap.com. Thank you.